Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Welcome back for another conversation on Chinese medicine with our guest, Dr. Ben Elon. Last time we talked about what is Chinese medicine. And if you missed that episode, I strongly encourage you to go back and hear that first, especially if you're not familiar with the topic already. And even if you are, it's probably worth revisiting because um, Ben might have a different perspective as someone who is trained not in TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, which is sort of the most popular kind of Chinese medicine we see out there, but in an older form of Chinese medicine. I'll let Ben make the distinction between ancient and classical in our fourth conversation together. But today we're going to get into the advantages of Chinese medicine versus Western medicine. And perhaps I should rephrase that. I, I think it's more of a, it's a comparative analysis between the two. And Ben walks us through the pros and the cons for each, as well as what particular conditions and situations one particular approach might be optimal for versus another and why. So it's a really interesting conversation and Ben has a lot of wisdom to share and I believe you'll enjoy it. So before I segue to our conversation, I just want to ask you, especially if you're listening to the show, you know, more than once and you're starting to enjoy the show, if you'd consider supporting the show, and I mean, even in small ways, if you could just head on over to iTunes or Stitcher, the Google Music Store, and take two minutes to write a review, that makes a big difference in terms of helping to get the word out about the show and sort of raise the profile about the show. So that's a wonderful way to help. Simply, you know, reposting it, sharing it on your social media accounts, emailing it to friends is also great, telling people about it. And finally, if, you know, your regular listener in particular, consider supporting the show on patreon.com slash hacking the self, even as little as $2 a month makes a really big difference. I'm still paying for the production cost of the show out of my pocket, and it's something that I love doing, but... I would love to not only be able to cover costs and I choose to outsource the production so that the audio quality is top notch for people, but it would also enable me to expand, you know, what I'm able to do and offer on this show. So thank you so much if you have the time and I appreciate you listening either way. And now I give you my conversation with Benny Lunn. Ben, thank you so much for joining us again for round two of our series on Chinese medicine. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And so the last one was an introductory, what is Chinese medicine? And if you're not familiar with the topic and you haven't heard that episode, I'd encourage people to go back and listen to it. But today we're going to talk about the advantages and disadvantages, kind of a comparative analysis of Chinese medicine versus Western medicine. It sounds so official when you call it a comparative analysis. <laughs> well, I feel it's, you know, they're two vast bodies of knowledge. We need a formal approach. Well, they are, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think? How should we kick it off? Should we perhaps talk about what Chinese medicine can treat and what it can't treat in a similar thing for Western medicine? Well, maybe before we get into that, it's important to maybe just talk about the two different driving ideas behind each of these forms of medicine. And we sort of mentioned, we sort of touched on this on the last episode that we recorded, 
And the big difference between Chinese medicine and Western medicine comes because that they're they're based on just very different approaches on how um, how they view uh, the human body and how they view life. So maybe we'll just mention those first. So Western medicine or modern medicine, like we're sometimes used to to calling it, is uh, what we call it's a reductionist approach, and that means it's set in the idea that if you look for the smallest components of a thing or in medicine, in this case, the smallest components of an illness, and we get, there will be some core issue that can be solved and that will uh, cure the illness. Meaning, so a Western doctor will be interested in looking for the smallest component that will cause the illness. And the idea is that when you get rid of that smallest component, then a patient will be, will be cured. So the idea that if uh, a person gets sick with a virus or a bacteria or a parasite, if they take a uh, a pill or a medication that gets rid of this bacteria or virus or parasite, they will become healthy again. What we're looking for is like a core cause. Uh, like there's one piece of the puzzle that's causing trouble, the smallest unit of an issue that's not working. And if we remove this this one problematic piece, the rest of the subject will get better. So it's like if we look at a, a person who's sick and if we find the problem that's that's causing the sickness, this idea that there's maybe one bacteria or one virus or one particular parasite that's making them sick. And if we remove this, this problem, the person will just be healthy. This is called the reductionist approach. It's trying to look at a subject, at a person, and break them up into their smallest components possible of observation, and then take out the one problem piece. In Chinese medicine, we uh, use what's called a holistic approach. And the holistic approach is the opposite. So instead of trying to get into the tiniest pieces of, uh, of the person, we're instead looking at the person as an entire system. So we say, yes, a person's made up of many tiny pieces. They're made up of cells and atoms and uh, organs and, and all sorts of different things that work together. But we say that the whole is bigger than the sum of its part. It's not just about the different pieces themselves, but how they're working with each other, how the system is working within itself. So it's not enough just to treat one part of the person. We have to treat the way that this one part is working with all the other parts and looking how the system is working. And it's not only just within the context of a person. In Chinese medicine, we go as far as to say a person is also part of a bigger system, which is like their environment in the world. And we also want to find, make sure that they're healthy and how they interact with that, this bigger system. So these are the two differences of an approach. Western medicine takes a reductionist approach, looking for the tiniest problematic part, where Chinese medicine takes a holistic approach and is interested in how the whole system is working in all the parts together. So thank you for that context. So that's very helpful, especially for people who are not familiar. So let's talk about what are the implications of that for treatment? Right. I mean, getting into specific in terms of efficacy, treating what kinds of illnesses and diseases, what are the pros of that Western approach and what are the cons? And I would ask the same for Chinese medicine. Okay. So in the case of Western medicine, as a Chinese doctor, I want to just put out there that I'm actually a very big fan of Western medicine. I think that Western medicine and Chinese medicine work fantastic together when they're used in the right way in tandem. And there are many different institutions that are now uh, Western medicine institutions that are now integrating Chinese medicine into their system in a way that it actually supports the healing that's going on. This is a big thing in, uh, in Israel where I come from that uh, most of the major hospitals do have an alter what they call the alternative medicine unit that uh, integrate Chinese medicine in different levels. Western medicine, I think, is probably the best emergency medicine the world has ever seen. I think when it comes down to um, urgency, in a sense, if uh, someone is bleeding out or if there is a severe infection happening that is time sensitive, an acute situation where a person's life is in danger or their 
health is in is in significant danger, and you want a fast reaction. I think Western medicine is fantastic at taking care of emergencies. It knows how to hone in, focus on a very particular problem without seeing the bigger picture, and just take and knocking that out. In a way, if you're in an accident and you know, God forbid, and you have an injury that you're bleeding from that could be fatal, uh, you definitely want a surgeon to just jump in and uh, and sew that up. And then use antibiotics to make sure that the infection won't set in. I think it's it's a great thing. What mes Western medicine is not so great at is everything leading up to this emergency and after the emergency. So this reductionist approach uh, tends to view every problem as with the same sort of uh, urgent intention. So if you, even if you come with a cold or if you come with a long-standing digestive issue, Western medicine approaches it as if it's uh, just looking in the perspective of the symptoms that are having now, and it tends it tends to focus more symptomatically. Maybe this is the key the key concept to look at. Western medicine is interested mostly in getting uh, getting rid of the symptoms that are happening, the observable symptoms that are happening here and now, and for that it makes it very good for emergencies, but it makes it not so great for chronic illness where. Uh, chronic illnesses where um, you can sometimes treat the symptoms, but they they tend to come back quite often. That you can get rid of them in the moment, let's say, but uh, it's much much harder to treat in the long term, and eventually getting to the point that even the symptoms can't be treated uh, after a long time. So I do have a question, but I'm thinking I, I want to save it until. Why don't you sort of sketch out what you think Chinese medicine, right? You know, and you're sort of alluding to it, but what its strengths are and also what its weaknesses are. Right. So this is these would be the strengths and weaknesses of Western medicine. Chinese approach that's been was used in China for thousands of years actually has the opposite strengths and weaknesses. Because it works holistically on a system, it is very good at building up a person so that they can fend for themselves, as in building up their immune system, building up their different organ systems so that they don't get sick. It's very good as a preventative to make sure that you never get to that emergency state. It's also good from taking someone who's been in an emergency state, someone who's been very sick, and bringing and rebuilding them back into health so that they can handle uh, the situation. And often everything that's uh, really just up, up to that critical point and after that critical point. And within that, it also has many tools which are good for critical situations, for emergencies. However, I would say the Western medicine are much, the tools that they have are, are stronger in that way, just by the, based on the way that Western medicine thinks. So I think in an ideal situation, you'd be using Chinese medicine or other Eastern medicines, to prevent yourself from getting to a situation where there was some sort of level of emergency. What Chinese medicine considers an emergency is usually the point where Western medicine starts seeing you as sick. When you uh, get those severe fevers, or a point where someone would need, need to take into the be taken into the emergency room to deal with an obstructed bowel or something like that. And then also once, let's say the Western medicine, once uh, the Western medicine would be applied, I would go back to acupuncture and herbs and uh, other supportive measures to make sure that the person would be in optimal healing mode so that their body could take care of itself and repair the damage, let the tissue regrow and, and just bring them back to their optimal health. Okay. So here's a good chance maybe to ask my follow-up question and play devil's advocate on something, sort of the pro-Western approach. I'm trying to think of one argument I could make of if someone who's pro-Western medicine, perhaps biased towards it, but sympathetic to the holistic approach of Chinese medicine and recognizing that reductionism is a weakness of you know Western medicine. But they might say something along the lines of the problem with something like, you know, Chinese medicine is that you talk about a lot of strengths and benefits of something like herbs or particular 
mushrooms or, you know, you name it. Let's, let's focus on herbs. Sure. And undoubtedly, people can figure some things out over time and there's a huge body of knowledge and not to say that experience is in a form of evidence, but there are many variables that go into experience and everyone's different. And when it comes to drawing conclusions about things, say what heals people, whether it's nutrition or you know food or herbs, there's really mm-hmm. nothing that could compare to a double-blind randomized controlled trial you know, in the Western approach. And that's really, that methodology is born of the scientific method. You know, the need to analyze, right. the need to assess, the need to be exactly precise. And how can people trust the veracity of a lot of the particular herbs or approaches like acupuncture unless they were uh, subject to a randomized control trial? What does veracity mean? Like, how can you trust the truth, like the reliability of them? Yeah, so that's actually a really great question that actually goes into even a bigger debate, which is more about like the double uh, blind control control trials method of, of research versus what we'd call qualitative research, which is just taking case study upon case study, essentially just building on experience, documented experience. And um, there's a lot of argument, I think, within uh, the scientific world to as which one represents what you'd call like the closer aspect of the the truth. And I think it's uh, it's different. I think when it comes to like the harder sciences, the double blind control trials tend to give a lot of very concrete data. Whereas when it comes to things like psychology and medicine, there's so many, so many, so many variables that I think the, like trying to paint a vaster picture, it's hard to paint a vast picture with something as reductionist as uh, a double blind control trial. Exactly because it's reductionist, because it goes in so, it hones in so particular on a very, such a very particular aspect of um, a bigger picture while ignoring how this particular, well, often ignoring, excuse me, well, often ignoring how this particular piece of information that it's extracting uh, fits into a bigger picture. So with like a double blind control trial, you can, am I saying that right? Double blind control trial? Yeah, people say randomized control trial, but it's double blind. You're right. I'd rather say that. A randomized, Double blind. What was the term that you used? I'd rather go with that. Yeah. Randomized control trial are, you know, implicitly, they're usually double blind. So sometimes people say double blind study or randomized control trial, but they, they usually mean this. Okay. Way. So let's go with randomized control trial. With a randomized control trial, you can get some very, very con- like solid particular data off one very small aspect of, you know, within a field which is, I would argue, intrinsically extremely complicated. You could, and then to how to how to apply this particular piece of information would be another question entirely. I mean, you could, for instance, some of the randomized control trials that they have done in the field of Chinese medicine have been around the use of uh, particular acupuncture points. So they'd collect, you know, groups of people suffering from the same symptoms. Let's say people suffering from um, some Crohn's disease, and then apply the same acupuncture points to each of them and look at the results. On a study like that. I would like be a little bit skeptical of the outcome, not because I thought that the research was bad, but just because the way of a, the, the reductionist approach would ignore, let's say, the fact that different patients, even though they show the same symptoms according to Western medicine, they might be uh, completely different uh, clinical pictures according to Eastern medicine. So, uh, Western medicine categories Crohn's disease as uh, as one particular syndrome, as one particular issue. Well, as in Chinese medicine, there's maybe five or six or seven general ways to classify inflammatory bowel illnesses. And each one has a different picture. And even though each person might be diagnosed Western-wise as uh, Crohn's disease, 
the Chinese will look at them as as a different with a different uh, with different eyes. So what I'm trying to say is that these acupuncture points would work differently on each of these different people, even if they're in the same group or in different groups. So it's just it's so easy for uh, while using randomized control trials with a, res- a Western reductionist approach, it's so easy to overlook all these other aspects which are important to uh, to Eastern medicine and to other forms of medicine in general. So I'm not I'm not against it, but I think that just in the the context of where uh, these disciplines are at the moment, that there's n- Western medicine's understanding of Chinese medicine is not vast enough to take in all these different factors in order to get you you know even a 50% accurate result with a with a randomized control trial. This is why, in my opinion, doing qualitative research, which is essentially just taking case studies and comparing them, and then you know just taking a, a large enough body of work to uh, get an idea of what the results might be is more appropriate for for the Chinese approach. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. In some, it's basically too difficult to integrate the two paradigms to have a really... I think the way I'm going to call this the tradition in which Western scientific Western medicine extracts its results and, and creates its truth through these ideas is, very, is intrinsically reductionist, exactly because that's you know what a, a randomized control trial is. It's trying to get to the smallest piece of uh, fact the smallest fact uh, fact unit. Whereas on the, even on that level, it's still a huge difference between Western scientific approach and, and Eastern uh, epistemology, Eastern Chinese epistemology. That makes sense. And if someone wants a good example, I think of um, someone who is into Western science, but kind of mindful of the reductionist approach and compensates for it. I, I think this recognition is starting to happen in nutrition. I, I'm not incredibly... I'm, by that, I mean Western nutrition. I'm not incredibly well-versed in nutrition, but I've done a plant-based nutrition course with T. Colin Campbell, who runs the Center for Nutrition Studies at Cornell, and he's very much a Western-trained scientist. He's, his study is actually called the China Study, if anyone's interested. And in- Yeah, it's a, very, it's a very famous one. Yeah, it's very famous. And you know, regardless of what you think of his research, and there, there are holes to poke in that, just like there are with anyone one thing I really liked about him was that he was a big fan of Western medicine and was using a lot of Western science to make a very strong case for his particular approach. But he was also acknowledging the fact that it's inherently reductionist. And when we focus on these one variable, we're missing so many other things that could be at play. And for example, the one criticism that would be, because he's talking about animal protein causing all these heart diseases like cancer could argue the one yeah. thing that's sort of missing from his analysis is the fact that the China st- study happens to be only about Chinese people. <laughs> and how do you factor it in differently when you have people with different genetic backgrounds? Does that, does that change things? You know, the discussion. So I'd also even, even add to that argument. It's not just about location. It's also about a certain period of time and that people's uh, nutritional access changes uh, relatively rapidly in the modern world. I mean, the things that people were eating in China when he was doing that, I think it was in the early 90s, was that when that was happening? Has probably changed a lot since he's done that, since he's done that research. Definitely. And, you know, and let's say even the data that was collected was earlier. Let's even be generous and say earlier in the 20th century. I mean, you could say the wisdom that that was built off of in terms of what the Chinese would eat. You were not having the problems with, say, eating beef a thousand yeah. years ago that you are today in China or in America. Right. 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 And there would also be so many different factors. I mean, as an example for for the kind of things that a, a reductionist approach might miss, 
changes in the environment as to where, you know, the, the cows from where the beef came from, what they were eating and how their diets also changed in ways that would just be impossible to map things like that. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, what's in the rivers for fish and all of that, all of that. And so on and so forth. Yeah. This is not to say that, you know, there's a, there's a a huge amount of value in this, in the, um, in the reductionist approach, as we said, it's very good for getting very specific results in, um, in a very effective and fast way, I think, but it's disadvantage. It's, it's a very particular disadvantage of missing the bigger picture, I think plays a big role in sort of the ineffectivity of, of, of using it to explore Chinese medicine and get good results. And I think maybe that's a big reason that you can see research like modern relative, the relative recent Western scientific research that's been done on Chinese medicine has uh, varied a lot, really depending, I think, a lot on the institution on uh, that's researching them and how they've done the their research, their trials, as in far as like what's effective and what's not. It's very hard to get a good reading on that, I, th- I think. That makes sense. So let me ask you something kind of on a personal level, you know, not only as a doctor, but as a practitioner, kind of what's your experience of how you view medicine and healing as someone who appreciates both of these paradigms? For example, when you are thinking about taking herbs, let's say, whether it's taking ginseng because it improves whatever the particular benefits are. I've heard many cited. To what extent do you really- Many. Yeah, many, right? To what extent do you care about the fact that a particular herb or or treatment, we could even take it outside the Chinese context too, has been verified by Western medicine and you have some sort of more rigorous data versus the fact that you're very comfortable with doing something on a more I wouldn't only say intuitive basis because I think generations of large amounts of people doing it and recording it is a form of of evidence. It's a different kind of evidence. But I guess in what kind of instances are you really just sort of comfortable, you know, going with one method versus the other and are there particular times when you really want that sort of more sort of outside validation that we're used to in the Western world and what are those situations? So the first thing I want to do is I, I think it's important to maybe draw like a very clear line between what you might call intuitive medicine versus uh, medicine which is based on a comprehensive system of, of logic, let's say, or based on, on like a, a coherent and cohesive uh, system of, of thinking. I would say that, you know, um, medical intuition does play a role in Chinese medicine to a certain degree, certainly more than in Western medicine. However, as a practitioner, you, you can't just walk in and just use your intuition. There's, you know, I studied five, my, my, my initial studies were about five years. And that was just the beginning of like learning this system and this knowledge, this body of knowledge that, that, um, that I use for Chinese medicine. And one of the wonderful things really about Chinese medicine that makes it, um, that I think sustained it over the, the centuries and the millennia, as well as makes it a good tool to integrate with Western medicine is that it's, when you get down to it, it, it makes sense in a sense that there's a system that that, it apply, that you can apply to a human body. There's a certain uh, understanding of how the human body works and that it's it's written down. You can There's a, a take on uh, what the human anatomy is, how the different organs work with each other, and that if something gets out of balance, you can use this system and apply it. So it's not a guessing game. It's the same in the sense it's different from Western medicine, but in the sense it has that same adherence to a logical, what would you call this, like beginning fall-through outcome we're expecting to see 
you know, the same results if we do the same sort of thing. Now, it's based on an entirely different way of thinking than Western medicine, but we, we're not just like, you know, shooting in the air here. I think that's an important distinction. So I'm glad you, you drew that. Well, you used a particular term when you were when you asking the question saying this is the system that we're used to. And I agree that Western medicine is definitely very clearly the, the most predominant system of medicine that's uh, alive in the world today. That wasn't always the case. It's a relatively new approach. It's only been around for about modern medicine, let's say about 150, 170 years in the form that it, that it exists today. Whereas before that, these other systems of medicine were predominant in different cultures. And essentially also every culture has its own system of medicine based on its own uh, ideas of how it views men, humans, health, the human body, and the universe in general. So when I think about the Eastern medicine, Eastern medicine versus Western medicine, in my mind at this point, I put them on the same uh, level. Like there's, they're, they're different systems definitely. And they're like different languages, the same way that, you know, you could speak English and you could speak Japanese or Chinese, yeah, to explain the world. And they're intrinsically, you know, they have the different ways of going about it, but you're explaining the same world. So if I can understand something better in Chinese, just from my own, because that's the language that I use, I don't necessarily have to translate it back into English to to consider it true or not, if you follow that metaphor. I do. Yeah. And I'm definitely acknowledging, and I'm, part of why I'm asking you is like cultural bias here. I'm, and I'm asking because you and I are both, we grew right. up in the West or systems that had Western medicine. Right. Well, it would really be about that. I think there is a bias towards, um, in general, there's a, within all cultures, there's a bias towards what's mainstream. And uh, Western medicine is very much, definitely, it's not only mainstream, it's most often hailed as like the one true medicine. And they call it medicine. They don't call it Western medicine. I mean, in this podcast, we, we call it Western medicine to differentiate it from Eastern medicine. But for most people, it's just what's, what's real and what's true. Whereas um, from my perspective, having studied these other forms of medicine and looking at it in its like historical and uh, also political context, you could say, well, you know, it's, it's one form of medicine. And, you know, just because I know how to speak English fantastic doesn't mean that you can't also speak Chinese or Japanese and function from that perspective. For sure. That's a fair point. I think it's definitely wrapped up in colonialism, imperialism, how ideas are spread and marketed and including how they're accepted even within, I imagine within uh, China, there are many more modern people living in cities today that might have a bias towards Western medicine because they've come to adopt. Oh yeah. We can, we can spend a yeah. whole hour talking about the situation in yeah. China. If you want to do that, <laughs> that's a, we'll have to add another episode. Well, I'm conscious of we're coming up on our time. What do you, do you have any um, final thoughts in terms of summarizing, wrapping things up on this topic? Well, you asked a question in the beginning, this just very sort of basic question, which people might, your, your listeners might be interested in, which is, you know, what should I come to a Chinese doctor with? And what should I come to a Western, a Western doctor? Yeah. With? Let's circle back. What does Chinese that? medicine treat essentially? So I would say because Chinese medicine is a comprehensive system of thinking about the body and health, it can treat everything. It was a system that's been used in China for thousands of years until Western medicine was introduced and it was used to treat everything. There's some things which it's better at treating and some things that, which are worse. And as we mentioned, in emergency situation, I preferred the antibiotics and the, the Western surgery. For everything else up until that, I would recommend Eastern medicine for everything that's uh, for chronic illnesses, especially pain. Acupuncture has been shown to be extremely effective for pain in often surprisingly in swift ways. And I'm talking about chronic pain. Yeah, not like pain when you break your arm, even though also for that, yes, a skilled practitioner can also help you with acute pain. But people suffering from chronic back pain, chronic knee pain, and any kind of pain, which uh, Western medicine is not, doesn't have so many effective ways of dealing with it. 
beyond just um, numbing it with pharmaceuticals. So puncture is shown to really be very, very effective for chronic pain and other chronic illnesses, things like inflammatory bowel disease, chronic digestive problems, headaches, asthma. My own personal story has to do a lot with um, getting treated for asthma with Chinese medicine, arthritis, chronic inflammation, even things like depression and mood swings, really so many, so many different things. What about heart disease, cancer, diabetes, osteoporosis, some of those big ones that happen? All of those things. And I say that with like, with a little caution because to, I don't want to make it sound like I'm claiming saying, well, you know, Chinese medicine can cure cancer. Chinese medicine is a comprehensive system. And that means, you know, we can treat everything. We can definitely treat everything. It doesn't mean it's a, to say that we can cure things is always a high tree to climb up on. So I would suggest someone with well, something like diabetes, which Western medicine has a good idea on how to manage, but not how to get rid of, I would definitely go to a Chinese doctor to see if they can help you also help reduce the illness by essentially making the human, the person stronger by strengthening your system. You're, the idea is to bring the body to a place where it's already managing to, uh, to take care of the problem in and of itself. Because we're not reductionist, we're not interested in getting to like the smallest cause. We're not looking for the cause of diabetes. We're interested in why the system isn't able to handle insulin production or insulin balance. And by, by um, managing the, the hormones and by managing the, um, let's say, the pancreas and strengthening the pancreas, we want to bring it to a point where the body is taking care of itself more effectively. Maybe this is something that's important to have said very much in the beginning that this holistic approach, because we're strengthening the system, we are interested in like what we'd call like reductionist causes, but we're mostly interested in why the body is not or why the person is not able to handle the problem themselves. So by strengthening them, the idea is whatever, whatever they're dealing with, uh, to bring them to a point that they can, they can just handle it themselves and to a point where we'll just give them some general upkeep once every couple of weeks or every couple of months and then, then it'll be smooth sailing from there. Maybe I just want to mention that just um, to add one more in the context of cancer, because that's often like the Holy Grail. I say, well, you know, if you pretend that you can either cure cancer, it's a, it's a hard claim to make. But there are, I have seen cases where just through this method of strengthening a person, often of strengthening a person, uh, bringing them to a place where um, their body is able to take care of even very severe diseases, or at least reduce the level of severity, reversing cancer stages. This is not something that's happened in my clinic, but I've seen this happen in other people's clinics. It varies a lot depending on the person. Mm -hmm. It varies a lot on like, you know, the constitution of the person that you work with, you know, what they're, what they're coming in with, how strong they actually are, and the rest of their system, the rest of their immune system, whether they, they have cancer or not. But yeah, you can see, you can see these things happen. I think it's also worth noting that at, at least at present, uh, Western medicines answered uh, cancer. It's not like they have a definitive solution at all either. It's very mixed results. You know, and it depends more with the type of cancer. So I don't think anyone's cracked cancer. I think I've been following just a little bit recently, sort of the new research around stem cell therapy, which is extremely promising frontier on a number of fronts, including cancer. And that I think could be maybe Western medicine's next great contribution. But up till now, I think, yeah, Western medicine has not been able to, to crack that nut of cancer. It's been, you know. <laughs> right I agree. But I think one of the reasons they haven't been able to crack the nut is it's not within like the methods of use, whether it's, you know, through chemotherapy or stem cells, but rather the reasoning behind it. And this new use of stem cell research actually shows us a strong step in away from reductionism towards holistic thinking for Western medicine. Say more it's about rather that. Usually utilizing this idea that... Say more about that. How does it show that? So to my, my limited understanding of, cell, of stem cell research comes from this idea that we're looking for ways to let the body regenerate itself. It's regenerating uh, using regenerative, regenerative cells 
you know, from the person themselves or from, from other places to replenish and revitalize the systems which are essentially supposed to be taking care of the cancer to begin with. That's my understanding too. Yeah. My limited, but right. yeah. So this is, these are using Western method, reductionist methods of like looking for the smallest component, but using them in a holistic context. And for me, I think that really symbolizes like the ultimate, you know, the epitome of, of integrated practice and also of effective practice. I think using the combination of both the reductionist and the holistic approach is something that will just skyrocket the field of medicine in general, rather than looking at like Western as the truth or Eastern as, you know, the, the overall uh, cure for everything. To put those two of them together, to put the reasoning, this combined reasoning, integrative approach together would be really what I think is going to, to take medicine forward into the future. I think that is the perfect note on which to end. So Ben, I want to thank you so much for your time and I'm already looking forward to our next conversation. Fantastic. Thank you very much.